Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. guys, and welcome to the Moms of Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing much better this week, much quieter and calmer, and yeah, it's been a great week. How are you, Melissa? I'm so glad you asked. No, I'm fine. Um, I feel like whatever was going on last week, you just were like, send it on over to Melissa. She'll enjoy it. And I did not enjoy it. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> I'm fine. Everyone here has been sick. And it was, I think I, I told you about this, right? Like the day I'm bringing my daughter to the doctor, I leave the house, the tire's flat. I go home. Yes. I roll my ankle when I get out of the car to go change cars with my husband. He has no gas. And he's like, I don't think my gas gauge is working. And I'm like, how is this the first time I'm oh, hearing no. about this? <laughs> how do you put $5? True question. Real question. Real life. Mandy, if your gas gauge wasn't working, wouldn't you just put like fill it up just in case because you don't really know what's going on. But wouldn't you feel pretty confident having full gas and not $5 at a time and just guesstimating that you're going to make it home on time? Yeah. I don't understand his brain. I yeah. love him so much. <laughs> and he's going to hear this because he does the initial audio taking weird noises out. But husband, I don't understand your brain. I don't really understand what's going on. So that's a summary. Everyone's feeling better. And if you'd like to take the curse back. I would love to give it back to you. I don't want to give it to you. Let's give I would it to somebody else. Yeah, I would not like to take it back. You'll have to pass it on to someone else. <laughs> this is going to be like, what's that movie? Um, the Ring. This is The Ring. Yeah. Anyone listening, <laughs> you've not got my curse. Bye. <laughs> oh my gosh. Don't say that. No, not anyone. <laughs> if you're a terrible, terrible person and you are listening to us to troll us, <laughs> no, I don't want to do that to somebody. I'm on, I don't know. Mandy, it's we got to get out of this. Get out yeah. of this. <laughs> Yeah, that's I'm even so sorry. that's even a bridge too far for for you, Melissa. I feel like that's just not very that's not you at all. I'm still sick. <laughs> I'm still sick. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. All right. So we're going to get into um, the episode for this week, and I'm really excited about it because there's a lot here. And when I say I had no idea where to begin with this week's story, I really, really mean it this time, guys. I actually had no idea where I should even think about beginning with this one. It's one of those stories that had me absolutely out of my mind trying to figure out what I believe happened. And it's really just full of these barmy details with twists and turns right up until the very end. 
This is a story pulled straight out of the 80s, and there are some very 80s elements at play that make the story that much more incredible. There is just so much to cover in this case that we are actually going to be doing it in two parts. And if two-parters aren't usually something that you like and it's not really your thing, then don't worry. Um, this one's going to be done a little bit differently than we've done two-parters in the past. And at the end of this episode, you won't really feel like you've been left with a cliffhanger ending. There is going to be kind of a completion at the end of this episode, but... There is so much more to the story after this that it deserved a part two. So you won't want to miss next week. Um, but if you don't listen to next week's and you'll still get a full story this week. So it's a win win for everybody. Well, we want you to listen to the next week because it's even crazier and you won't even believe it. And we got to yes. hype man ourselves. Let's hype yes. it. Exactly. Got to listen exactly. next week. Yeah, for sure. So at age 22, I can't say that I had really accomplished a whole lot. My biggest accomplishment at that point probably was that I had recently had my first son, but other than that, I didn't exactly have a lot of things to put on a resume. And maybe it's just that things were a little different in the 70s and 80s compared to how they are now. But the woman at the center of today's story, Lori Bembenek, sure did have a decent list of accomplishments by the time she was 22. It was in March of 1980, just shortly after she turned 21, that Lori applied for and got a job as a police officer for the Milwaukee Police Department, which ended up being a life-changing position, but not quite in the way that you might be thinking. Lori Bimbenek was born Laurencia Bimbenek, but she started going by Lori, so that's what we're going to call her in the story. She was born on August 15, 1958 in Milwaukee to parents Joe and Virginia. Her father, Joe, was a carpenter who worked as a police officer at one point when Lori was growing up. Her mom, Virginia, was a stay-at-home mom, and there were already two older daughters that the couple had before Lori was born. Before being born, her parents had a son who was born premature and unfortunately passed away. Joe and Virginia were totally heartbroken, and they prayed for another child, and that's when they found out they were having Lori. Everyone in the family was overjoyed about Lori's birth, and her older sisters were super excited as well. Lori was really spoiled, and they really overindulged her. One sister actually said that it, quote, became an emotional problem, end quote. The Bimbanex raised their three girls really well. They had a very happy home life in a stable, middle-class family, and she really had a happy childhood with lots of memories. Lori attended an all-girl Catholic school, St. Mary's Academy, at around the age of 12, Lori noticed a priest at the school who seemed a little too interested in the students and their bodies in particular. One day, this priest allegedly lost his temper and called Lori an explicit slur. Lori was rightfully upset, and she wanted her parents to stick up for her against what this guy was saying. Instead, they pulled her out of school, which Lori felt meant that she was admitting to wrongdoing when she had done nothing you know, to deserve any of this. Lori would later say, quote, it was my first really powerful lesson in independence, end quote. After leaving the Catholic school, she went to the local public school, Bayview High School. She was a really good student there, but she was kind of bored because she was more advanced than her peers. It really made her lose interest in school. She was very intelligent, but somewhat aloof, and she was known as being quieter shy, but could sometimes be cool and manipulative. She tried to stay very busy with her extracurriculars, like being in the school band where she played the flute. She also joined ski club and the track team. She apparently could run really fast. She was great at 110-yard hurdles. But Lori wasn't just smart and talented. She was also popular and very well-known. And this was because she was a bit wild. And this was according to friends and other people that went to the school. She was very outgoing and outspoken, and she had a very big personality that drew people in and just made them like her. She was also known for partying in high school, and she experimented with pot and amphetamines. Her personality was very charismatic, and she loved getting attention, and that was good because she actually got a lot of attention. She was really known for her beauty and her looks, and everywhere she went, all eyes were always on her. She was always the first one to be asked to a dance at the school, or if she was at a club, she was the first person that would get asked to, you know, go for a dance on the dance floor. During their senior year, Lori and her friend Joanne took a spring break trip, and they actually drove down to our neck of the woods, down to Daytona Beach, Florida. 
And there, Lori met a boy named Danny and kind of started falling for him. So they started dating and at first had this long distance relationship. And they ended up continuing a more serious relationship for the next four years. After graduating high school, Lori went off on her own as free as a bird, and she found work doing things she enjoyed, such as modeling, taking classes in fashion merchandising, and also working a few part-time jobs, including a waitressing job at a Playboy lounge. That's a lot of things to be so young. Oh my gosh. Yeah, well, it just kind of reminds me, and see, at 22, the reason I didn't have a lot of accomplishments is because I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life when I was 22. Um, I really tried, you know, to have, I definitely went through phases where I had different plans for my life, and then kind of, they would, I would realize that maybe that's not what I wanted to do, but at 22, I was still kind of figuring it out, and that's kind of what Lori reminds me of, that she was just trying to figure out what it was that she really liked doing and, you know, with the fashion thing. And she was also waitressing and she's very personable. So she kind of strikes me just as somebody who was just doing what a normal 22 year old is doing, just kind of figuring out what they like and what they want to do with their life. As a former Barbizon reject model, I um, (laughs) I really think she was very well accomplished. I never got that far in uh, Barbizon school. Definitely. But Lori was actually anxious to create a more stable life and a career for herself. And that's when she decided that she wanted to become a police officer. So she applied to the Milwaukee Police Department and got the job in March of 1980. As I said, she was just 21 years old and she got this job. At this time, Lori had been dating Danny for several years, and he was starting to think about the two of them possibly settling down. He really wanted to get married and have a family, and he wasn't very fond of Lori's career choice, and he really did not want her to be an officer. He had kind of these plans for their future, and in his mind, it included Lori being a stay-at-home mom to their kids. And this was really a deal breaker between them because Lori didn't want those things. She wanted to have a career. She wanted to work. So the two of them actually didn't end up working out. They broke up. As a young and attractive woman, Lori said that her time in police training was everything but easy. She said that she was harassed and abused throughout her training. And she said that the white men got a pass for various infractions while the women and black recruits received severe punishment. Lori said that the male officers and recruits gave her a nickname that she absolutely hated, which was Bambi. And she hated this nickname because she felt that they're calling her out for being a woman and, you know, who is attractive. And she thought that they were implying that she was just what she said, quote, an empty headed bimbo. So obviously she hates this nickname. So keep in mind, of course, in 2021, you wouldn't be subject to this treatment in your work environment, but this shouldn't be, you should not be exactly. Um, but this was of course, very early eighties, barely even in the eighties and, um, things were a little bit different. So this was the kind of harassment that she was dealing with, um, in the workplace while she was trying to go through this police training. So she really felt that the others had it out for her while she was still in training. Somebody anonymously reported that Lori was seen smoking marijuana at a party It was never actually proven that she smoked marijuana and the issue was later dropped, but Lori did believe that she knew who had made this false tip. She had attended a party with some fellow officers and trainees, and when she was at this party, one of the officer's wives thought that Lori was trying to flirt with her husband. And this woman was heard complaining about how Lori was dressed and, you know, just saying, look at her. Can you believe her? Just that kind of thing. So Lori thinks that this was just some catty, you know, really petty thing that this woman called in this anonymous tip saying that she was smoking pot at the party when, you know, she wasn't. So this police training lasted for 21 weeks. And then Lori was assigned to the Southside Second District. And she pretty much hated working there. According to her, the district was full of, quote, brutal, lazy, apathetic, and corrupt officers. She didn't last very long as an officer at this job, no surprise. Within one month, she was actually fired, but it was under some pretty weird circumstances. So a fellow officer and a friend of Lori's named Judy Zess had recently attended a concert with Lori. And Judy apparently was caught smoking pot at this concert, and so she was arrested on scene. Judy allegedly told the police that Lori was also smoking pot at the concert. And so they didn't really work to verify any of this. They didn't do any drug testing um, or anything to, you know, corroborate this. But allegedly they were both fired for this incident. 
But there are other sources that say that Lori was actually fired because she filed a false police report regarding Judy's arrest. And she allegedly lied in this report and said that Judy wasn't smoking at all. So it could really be either one. I could see Mm. either one of those being the case. Yeah. But either way, they both were fired from the force. So Lori was obviously feeling pretty angry and bitter about losing this job over what really amounts to hearsay. She felt that this was unfair and unjust, and she wanted some kind of revenge on the people who were messing with her and causing her problems. She was fighting her termination and hoping to get her job back. In October of 1980, Lori got her chance. She'd been gone for the department for over a month at this point when a friend showed Lori some interesting photos. There were some pictures that had been taken at an outdoor party event sponsored by a place called the Tracks Tavern. In the photos, there were numerous officers, both men and women, and they were all in attendance at this event, dancing around with their clothes off and just partying it up and having a really grand old time. This event was an annual picnic that the Track Tavern put on. Usually there was between 600 and 800 people in attendance, which any, you tell me a crowd is that big. I just cannot think of a place I would not want to be. Right. Anyone who's connected to this bar really just shows up and it's this huge party. There are things like pie eating contest. I'm on board. Onion eating contest. Not so much. What t-shirt contest? Absolutely not. What jockey short contest? <laughs> I don't think I'm eligible and no thank you. That must what have gone happening? out in the 80s. I have never heard of that. Or maybe I'm just very sheltered because I have never even – I've heard of wet t-shirt contest, sure, but I have never heard of this thing, wet jockey short contest. That was a thing and they were doing it at this event. <laughs> yeah, it's just I can hear a bunch of men screaming, I was in the pool. I was in the yeah. pool. <laughs> Uh, that's my Seinfeld reference for this episode. And also there's apparently people, if you're not just in a wet t-shirt or wet jockey shorts, they're just taking their clothes off and just turning this into a nudist party. So when Lori's friends show her these photos that he's taken at this event, which by the way, you have to get like printed out in the 80s. Right. So somebody, somebody <laughs> went through these photos. She looks at them and sees, you know, hey, this is actually great blackmail or ammo material. So she takes these photos and goes to the Milwaukee office of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And she tells them, hey, I was fired for, quote, a minor infraction that hadn't been proven, end quote. But look at this proof. Look, these are these officers engaging in all this conduct that clearly broke the department's rules. So the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission agreed with Lori and said that she likely had a discrimination case against the department, and they suggested that she give these photos to the police department's internal affairs department. At this point, Lori filed a discrimination suit against the force, and an investigation was launched into the Milwaukee police. Can I just say I feel like Lori is very brave at this stage? Because there is no way I would have done any of this. I mean, I think it's amazing that she did, you know, go and pursue because she felt wronged by the department. I think it's great that she did go after, you know, what she felt was right. But I that would be the moment where I'd be like, okay, I'm just going to find a new job and I'm, you know, forget this. I will never be a police officer again. I'll find a new career. Forget it. You know, right. We need people like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's great that there's people like that. But yeah, absolutely. Me either. Whenever we were even starting the story, whenever it was like she was there a month and she was going to go after them. I'm like, oh, okay. well, that's an option. I don't think I would have come up with that one. (laughs) I would have been like, I got fired. This stinks. But no, it's important. You have to fight back against things. I get that. But I'm never the person that's going to do that. I just, I don't even think it's in my DNA. Right. <laughs> so, but during all of this, Lori's not doing so hot in the rest of her personal life. You know, after this firing, she can't find work and she had a part time babysitting gig, but really nothing substantial. She couldn't work at other police departments or even have a job as a security guard. Uh, she feels like her life is really falling apart. And she's wanting to get it back on track, but she doesn't know exactly what to do next. That's when the woman that Lori babysat for introduced her to a man named Alfred Schultz. Alfred had recently divorced his wife, Christine, about a month earlier, actually. Ironically, he was also employed by the Milwaukee police, and he was actually in the photographs of the half-naked officers at the little shindig picnic thing that Lori had photos of. Alfred had a reputation for partying hard and being vulgar. 
One policewoman who worked with him said, quote, he was obnoxious and he'd brag about it, end quote. We all know people like that. For sure. He was really a life of the party guy, but not always in the best way. Sometimes those people can be a lot. But something about his personality really drew Lori in. It may be because the two of them were kind of similar in a lot of ways. They always had the spotlight and loved being the center of attention. So Lori's best friend, Joanne, knew that Lori had really met her match with Alfred, who sometimes went by Fred. Joanne said, quote, I thought Lori was an attention getter, but Fred was over the top, end quote. Everything about him from the way he dressed to his loud voice was very, very extra. And Fred was really seen as a big jokester. So Lori and Alfred had this very quick courting phase, and after just two months of dating, the two were married on January 30th, 1981. At this time, Alfred was only divorced from his first wife, Christine, for about three months. It was the law in Wisconsin that you actually could not get married for six months following a divorce, so Alfred and Lori crossed the state line into Illinois to get married. But then Illinois also wouldn't recognize their marriage because their law says that if you aren't able to legally marry in your home state, you can't just go there and get married either. They are also not going to recognize your marriage. But Alfred actually lied on the marriage license in Illinois and listed that he had never been married or divorced. So they were, I guess, legally married, but they accomplished it with like illegal means. I don't really understand. I guess the marriage was legal. They were legally married if (laughs) no one caught them being illegally married. Um, And I guess after the six months is over, then you're in the clear. I don't really know how any of that works. You get grandfathered in, I guess. (laughs) You're grandfathered (laughs) into your marriage to your spouse. Right, exactly. So after they got married, Lori got a job as a private security guard at Marquette University. And she and Alfred lived with a roommate who was Lori's friend, Judy, which was the same one that she was allegedly smoking pot with at the concert and they both got fired. So Judy was also an ex-police officer. So after Alfred moved in, um, Judy eventually moved out. And without her contribution, finances were really tight around there. Alfred was already short on money himself because he was paying half the mortgage at his old house where Christine still lived with their two kids, and he was also paying child support. In total, he was actually paying Christine nearly half of his paycheck, so he didn't have a lot of money to bring to the table when it came to Lori. Meanwhile, Christine was also moving on from her marriage to Alfred, and she was dating another officer named Stuart Honeck. This was kind of an awkward situation because when Alfred and Christine first separated before their divorce, when they first had just separated, Alfred went and lived with Stuart for over a year before the divorce from Christine was finalized. So he was a friend of Alfred's. They lived together for a year whenever, you know, Alfred split up with Christine and now he's dating Christine. So this is. I have a family story like that. It's a little bit sticky, a little bit of a sticky situation when you get into something like that. Yeah. So this relationship was pretty serious, though, the one between Christine and Stuart. And Stuart later said that he planned on marrying Christine. And, you know, things were really, really serious. I'm assuming there was no more friendship with Alfred at that point. But I don't know. I don't know how that kind of thing works. Do you know how that kind of thing works, Melissa? (laughs) In uh, my I'll call it a family situation. I have someone in my family who was married to someone and then divorced them and then got with their mutual best friend and then divorced him and went back oh, no. with the original one and then oh, separated no. and went back and then now nobody's with that person. And it was a very confusing time as a small child to be like, hey, I remember you, your best <laughs> friends with, oh, you hate him? Oh, okay, got it. Yeah, so those are those are fun. Typically, they don't stay friends, uh, if I'm being totally honest. Uh, right. Nobody wants to be friends with each other after that situation. A little messy. Yeah, for sure. So after the divorce, though, Christine got a job to help provide for her two sons that she had with Alfred now that she was a single mom. She got a job at ProLine Manufacturing as a shipping clerk. Christine hadn't always worked outside the home, though. It was her first year in college when she met Alfred for the first time, and he was a junior. They were married on September 20th, 1969, and they had their two sons, Sean and Shannon. The family moved to Milwaukee, and Alfred joined the police force while Christine became a stay-at-home mom. 
the marriage between them was never really great. They were always kind of on rocky terms and they separated and got back together numerous times before the final time that they separated and finally got divorced on November 17, 1980. The kids stayed living with Christine in the house and Alfred moved out, but he kept paying half the mortgage. So now we're up to May of 1981, and both Alfred and Christine have moved on to their new respective relationships. Alfred is now dating and living with Lori Bembenek, and Christine is now dating another officer named Stuart, who used to be Alfred's friend, and now it's just a very confusing, messy situation. And then in the early morning hours of May 28th, a tragedy unraveled that really makes up this entire story. And we're going to get into it after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Do you have that one corner in your house that you think something goes there, but I don't know what? We know it goes there, and that's a beautiful plant. But if you aren't sure where to get said beautiful plant, might we suggest Bloomscape? Bloomscape delivers healthy plants straight to your door and is perfect for everyone from botanists to cereal plant killers. If you aren't sure where to start, check out Bloomscape's website. There you'll find a huge variety of beautiful plants that you can comb through with categories like plant size, how much light they'd need, and how easy they are to take care of. I went right to the no fuss section to find my new plant. I chose the Dracino Dorado in a charcoal colored pot because it not only ties my whole living room together, but it truly is no fuss. I'm obsessed with it and it's so beautiful and came with these easy to follow instructions so even I'm able to take care of it. And if you're a plant novice, Bloomscape makes it really easy with an instruction card that comes with your plant as well as their grow how team and tips and tricks from the plant mom on their website. And with Bloomscape, if I have questions about my new plant, I know I can ask the Grow How team at any time. Bloomscape recently launched their outdoor bloom kits, which are completely customizable. You can do anything from mixing and matching sizes and colors, creating your very own outdoor oasis. Bloom kits also come with a mix of annual plants that are suited for your environment. Get 15% off plant orders of $100 with promo code MOMS, bloomscape.com. That's 15% off plant orders of $100 or more at bloomscape.com, promo code MOMS. Spring is here and I'm so excited, I'm ready to get outside and put on my dancing shoes. Just kidding, for the good of humanity, I will not be dancing, but if I were to dance, I'd do it in my Rothy's. Rothy's are the most comfortable shoes I've ever owned, all while still being stylish and durable. What do you look for in a pair of shoes? For me, I want comfort and style. There's nothing worse than finding a cute pair of shoes only to put them on and realize you have a good hour before blisters will start setting in. That's not the case with Rothy's, though, because Rothy's shoes are knit with thread that's made from water bottles, making them completely comfortable as soon as you put them on. So there's no need to carry those Band-Aids in your purse, just waiting for the moment you've worn them a little too long. And don't just take our word for it. Refinery29 says Rothy's are equal parts comfortable and chic. And Health says they're the most comfortable shoes on earth. Plus, Rothy's are completely machine washable. I wear my steel gray Rothy's tennis shoes on a daily basis. So when they need a quick refresh, I simply throw them in the washer every few weeks and boom, they come out just as good as new. Rothy's also makes bags that are the perfect accessory to every outfit. Plus, they're machine washable, just like their classic shoes. Rothy's has so many styles and colors for their shoes and bags. The only problem is deciding which one to pick. Check out all the amazing shoes, bags, and masks available right now at rothys.com slash moms. That's rothys.com, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash moms. Style and sustainability meet to create your new favorites. Head to rothys.com slash moms today. Now back to the episode. So before the break, we were finishing introducing you to some of these main people that are involved in the story this week. Uh, the first one we met was Lori Bimbenek, who was the young and vivacious police officer who had been fired from her job after just one month for allegedly smoking pot at a concert. Again, this was never proven. She was really angry over her termination, and she filed a discrimination lawsuit against the police force and spurred an investigation into the department after she showed these photos of these officers partying naked in public. She quickly began dating another officer on the force named Alfred Schultz, who was a recently divorced father of two, who was in the early stages of working out this financial agreement with his ex-wife, Christine, who also started dating another officer after her divorce from Alfred. You guys got that? Is everybody (laughs) totally on board? (laughs) There's a lot going on here. But 
things weren't much like that sentence, not exactly perfect. Things were just kind of, not the sentence, the idea, all of this. It's a lot in my head. Still not feeling great. So it it's a lot. Um, so Lori's fight with the police department was getting pretty messy around this time. She tells the DA, James Morrison, who was in charge of this investigation into the Milwaukee police, that the officers who worked on the force engaged in a lot of scandalous activity. She said they sold porn from their squad cars, accepted sexual favors from sex workers while on patrol, and frequented known drug hangouts. These allegations clearly ruffled some feathers because in the weeks after Lori filed this lawsuit, several anonymous but threatening actions were taken against her. In one case, she had her tires slashed, uh, she had a dead rat left on her windshield, and she even got a late-night phone call that claimed that her mother was dead. How sick do you oh have to be to gosh. do that? Wow. Yeah. And so Lori believed that the police force was behind all of this and that they were angry that she had initiated this investigation into the department. After all we've heard so far, doesn't sound that far-fetched to me. Yeah, and that is really scary. I, again, would probably just pack up and move to a new city at this time. Yeah, I, I don't have that much going for me here. I could I could yeah. be gone by, by midnight. <laughs> Definitely. So there really was a lot going on within Lori's little bubble at this time in her life. You know, she was fighting with the police, which I don't imagine is ever easy, no matter who you are. Um, she's barely working, so she doesn't really have a lot of income. And she's living with this new husband, Alfred, who was going through his own set of struggles. And then on May 28th, 1981, things got even stickier. Alfred was on patrol in the early hours of that morning when he received a call informing him that his ex-wife, Christine, had just been murdered. His two sons had been taken to a neighbor's house, and Alfred and his partner, Michael, went to the scene, which, of course, was the home that Alfred used to share with Christine and their two boys. When he got there, he learned that an intruder had entered the house and made their way into Christine's bedroom on the second floor. The intruder tied Christine's hands and used a handkerchief to gag her. They then went into the boy's bedroom and put their hand on Sean's face and tried to tie something around his neck. Sean also said that the person was wearing a glove on their hand. But Sean screamed and the intruder was scared off and left, but they went back to Christine's room and Sean heard what he said sounded like a firecracker and then the intruder left down the stairs. So Sean ran into his mom's room and realized what had happened, and he called her boyfriend, Stuart, who, as we said, was also a police officer. Stuart wasn't at Christine's house, but he called the police and told them to send paramedics and an officer over there. When the police arrived at Christine's house, it was about 2.30 in the morning. Christine, who was 30 years old, was found dead on her bed. Her left wrist was bound with a clothesline, and there was a bandana-type handkerchief tied on her face in a gag fashion. Investigators noticed and collected multiple strands of hair, including one strand of reddish-brown hair-like material. So keep a note of that. It was not hair. It was hair-like material, and this will come up later. And this um, strand of synthetic hair was collected from Christine's calf. When you said it like that, it reminded me of like whenever you're taking notes in school and your teacher's like, take a note of that, and you're like, that's going to be on the quiz. You know that's yeah. coming on the quiz. <laughs> So officers began their investigation the way most investigations begin, by looking at the basics. There was no signs of forced entry into Christine's home. Um, both children said that this intruder, they got a look at him, and they had long reddish-brown hair and wore it in a ponytail. 11-year-old Sean described this intruder as being husky. 8-year-old Shannon said the intruder was wearing a green jogging suit with a yellow stripe. The kids both said that the intruder had the voice and hands of a man. Since Christine and Alfred had recently divorced, officers naturally wanted to verify that Alfred had an alibi, which he did. Alfred was actually on duty that night, which his partner was able to confirm. He and his partner, Michael, were at a local pub from shortly after midnight until around 2 a.m., allegedly on their lunch break. They got a burglary call at around 2 o'clock that morning, which they then responded to, and then they went back to the station, and they got there around 2.30. It was about 2.40 when they heard about there being a shooting at Christine's house. Both officers gave statements that they were with each other the entire time from 12.25 a.m. until 2 a.m. But investigators looking into Christine's murder still wanted to know more, so they visited that pub that Alfred and Michael said that they were at. 
Georgie's pub was owned by a man named George, who signed an affidavit telling a bit of a different story about what Alfred and Michael were up to that night. George said that the two officers came in while on duty and proceeded to sit at the bar and ordered two to three mixed drinks each. When they left the bar, George went with them and they got into an unmarked police car and drove to another bar and had more drinks. While at the second bar, George said Alfred went to use the bathroom and then later when he came back, the officers got the call to investigate the burglary. So Alfred and Michael drove George back to his pub and then they left. And still, George wasn't done giving the police information. He also volunteered the fact that he had recently introduced Alfred to a man who had been convicted of manslaughter with a gun, a man by the name of Frederick Hornberger. George said Alfred, who again is a police officer, was aware of Frederick's past. Alfred and Frederick both worked at Georgie's pub doing some upgrades around the place for him. George saw Alfred and Frederick hanging out together multiple times and at multiple different bars. So they didn't just know each other at this pub anymore. They knew each other and were out and about together different times. Right. So it doesn't sound like Alfred, maybe or his partner, maybe they weren't the most upstanding type of officers, but at least the investigators could confirm that Alfred was at the bar when Christine was shot. So even though his alibi is doesn't make him look like a great person or, you know, a great, he's not doing a good job. Um, he definitely was not the one to kill Christine. His alibi was really airtight. So when investigators asked Alfred about, you know, what about your off-duty weapon? He said that he kept that at home. And of course, that's the home where he lives with his new wife, Lori, who, keep in mind, is no stranger to the Milwaukee mm. police because she's the reason that this, you know, investigation into their department is going on right now. A lieutenant at the department told Michael to take Alfred back to the apartment so that he could check on his off-duty weapon for any signs to see if it had been recently fired. And Michael examined the gun and determined that it had not been recently fired or cleaned. And so then he gave the gun back to Alfred. The police did not seize the gun. They really didn't have a reason to at this point. And the gun stayed in the apartment. By 6.30 that morning, police were at the apartment to question Lori. Lori said that she was at home asleep all night and Alfred actually did try calling Lori right after he got the news about the shooting. But when he first called, he got a busy signal. So he waited a few minutes and then he called back again and Lori did answer and said, you know, what's going on? I've been asleep. The police also talked to Christine's new boyfriend, Stuart, who, as we said, was a fellow officer on the force. He said that on May 27th, the day before Christine was shot, the two of them worked on a garden and cooked spaghetti for dinner. I think he was possibly on duty at the time that she was killed. I couldn't find out for sure, but he was never a suspect in the murder. So I assume that they also cleared his alibi. Friends of Christine were also interviewed. Her closest friend, Dorothy, told the police that about four years earlier, Christine was convinced that Alfred was having an affair. She allegedly told Dorothy that Alfred had this violent temper and that she was scared of him. Alfred had allegedly slapped Christine across the face on one occasion, and when their divorce was going on, Christine complained of minor harassment at Alfred's hand. She was worried that Alfred was following or watching her because he was angry about her new relationship with Alfred's former friend and co-worker, Stuart. Oh, so they were still co-workers, right? Yeah, so it's just like all of these connections are very, very close. You know, you have like all these police officers and then you have Lori who's off on the side doing her own thing, fighting the police officers. Alfred is still working as a police officer for the force that his wife Lori is fighting. And then the ex-wife is also dating an officer. There's just a lot going on in a very small group of people, in a very small circle of people. What's the saying? Don't defecate where you eat? I feel like... Yeah. <laughs> I was telling my husband a little about this case and he actually said the same thing or he was like, don't um, whatever it is. Yeah, don't work. I don't know what it was. But yeah, it was something along those lines, you know, <laughs> with this story, because that's exactly right. You know, that this is why you just keep different parts of your life separate completely. <laughs> <laughs> so during the investigation, the police learned that Christine had actually complained to her lawyer earlier that very month on May 5th that Alfred was not paying his child support. During one of the arguments about these payments, Christine told her lawyer that Alfred said, quote, I'm going to blow your head off. But it wasn't just Alfred that was known to say these kinds of violent things. His new wife, Lori, had also been heard making similar comments. 
It was later learned that Lori told her former roommate's mom that Alfred's alimony payment to his ex-wife was too high and that she should have Christine, quote, blown away. So it definitely seems like there would be a motive for either Alfred or Lori to want Christine out of the picture. But there's still a lot more to the story that suggests there could be something even more nefarious going on. And we're going to get into the rest of those details after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. A few weeks ago, Paramount Plus added Team Mom 2 to their lineup. So obviously, I've spent the last week watching hours of footage of Janelle being Janelle. Teen Mom 2 is definitely textbook guilty pleasure content, but one thing I don't feel any guilt about is my love of Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a match three puzzle game unlike any you've downloaded before. I love that every level of Best Fiends is a little different, so there's always something to look forward to. There's thousands of levels to complete with different competitions to participate in every day, making it something I look forward to taking a few minutes to play. I've been playing Best Fiends for over a year now, and I'm on level 1,395. Even on levels I don't pass right away, I'm earning keys so I can open crates to get prizes to use on various levels to help me get further in the game. I love that it doesn't take long to play Best Fiends, so I can knock out a new level while I'm walking the dog or brushing my teeth. Best Fiends is a great de-stressor and a nice distraction from day-to-day life. If you're playing Best Fiends, let us know what level you're on. And if you're not, now's a great time to start. Download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Life is constantly changing. One minute things are going great and the next you feel like things are out of control. Your mind is all over the place and you're struggling to find balance and peace. Or maybe you have critical or urgent things going on in your life that you need to discuss with someone and just have the opportunity to let it all out. BetterHelp Online Counseling may be the solution you've been looking for. I signed up for BetterHelp well over a year ago, and when I signed up, I just took a short quiz to find out what exactly I was looking for at a counselor and was matched right away to a therapist who I've really enjoyed talking to. Through therapy, I've been working on some things that have been affecting me through the years. I love that I have the option to speak with my therapist by video chat or phone calls. I personally prefer phone calls because I like to wear mismatched pajamas when talking about uncomfortable things. Plus, I can message her throughout the week just to check in. She's sent me articles to read and makes me feel like she's genuinely invested in the things I want to work on. Being able to speak to my counselor from my home and at times that I can make work is one of the best gifts I've been able to give to myself. Everything you share with your counselor is confidential and BetterHelp can help match you with a counselor who specializes in things like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, trauma, and more. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com moms. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot moms. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. 
Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Now back to the episode. So before the break, we were just getting more into the investigation into the shooting death of Christine Schultz, a recently divorced mother of two who was in the early stages of figuring out her life as a single mom. Christine's ex-husband, Alfred, worked for the Milwaukee Police Force and had already romantically moved on and was now married to 22-year-old Lori Bimbenek, a former police officer on the force who was in the process of fighting what she believed was a wrongful and discriminatory termination. Now, it seemed as though the investigators were suspicious that Alfred or Lori or both of them could possibly be involved in Christine's sudden murder. Alfred, though, had an alibi for the night his ex-wife was killed, but Lori's alibi was that she was sleeping at her apartment alone with no one there to verify this, which is literally my biggest fear. <laughs> it's so is all I want to do is be alone, but I also watch too much crime TV and take in too much to be like, that's the dumbest thing I can do. I will yeah. never have an alibi. Yeah. When I heard that that was her alibi, that she was home sleeping, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what Melissa always says. Like, this would be her alibi all the time. What do you it do? Would just not, not be a good alibi. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'd be like, well, I watched The Office for 30 minutes and then I tried to watch a new show, but I didn't like it. So I went back and watched the same, like the dinner party episode. There's nothing that, <laughs> what can you do? But I'm- it's like, it's so hard to verify that you weren't doing that at two in the morning. You know, like, I mean, if someone tells me they're home sleeping at two o'clock in the morning, I'm going to believe they were home sleeping at two o'clock in the the morning. I know. It's just very hard um, in that situation because, yeah, like, what do you do? How do you prove that that's what you were doing? Now, to be fair, if you said I was sleeping at two in the afternoon, you'd know I was a liar because I have children right. and that's <laughs> never going to happen. <laughs> so in that case, sure, I can see how it could really backfire on you. But back to the story, uh, when we take a look closer at some of these behind the scenes activities that are going on in this case, you start to wonder if there could be any other driving factors that led the investigation in the direction that it was going. Starting from the day of the murder, the police seemed to be handling this particular case a lot differently than usual. For one thing, they didn't notify the medical examiner's office until around four o'clock in the morning. And when the medical examiner arrived, the scene was already processed and Christine's body had been wrapped in plastic sheets and prepared for removal from the scene. Her hands had paper bags placed over them because they said that the ligature, which had originally bound the hands together, had been partially untied and that could have possibly destroyed evidence. All of this really struck the medical examiner as being very strange because he had never seen any of this done before. Usually the medical examiner is involved in all of those things, processing the scene, you know, getting the body ready to transport from the scene. And he had never seen a case that was handled like this in his seven and a half years with the medical examiner's office. As soon as the medical examiner arrived, the officers told them to take Christine's body and just leave. And the medical examiner was not able to look around or investigate the scene himself, which made him feel really uneasy because, you know, he felt like the scene has been changed significantly just by moving the body. And he noted that this was all, quote, highly irregular because according to the law, the body of a victim and the scene of the death, including everything around it, are primarily in the medical examiner's jurisdiction, not in the police. So the police really had no right or um, authority to huh. simply go in there and start moving around the body and disturbing the evidence before the medical examiner has even had a chance to get to the scene. Yeah. So later that morning, the medical examiner was trying to get more information on the case and, you know, he's back at his office. And so he calls the police and the lieutenant that took the call told him that it was none of his business and refused to offer any information. (laughs) Yeah. So as part of the usual protocol, the medical examiner alerted the officers when Christine's autopsy was about to begin. And typically this was because the police department would send an officer of their own over to witness the autopsy. But this time they declined to send somebody. And they also hesitated to send an identification technician to take photos of the body before the autopsy, which was also out of the ordinary because it's normally the police who want those photos. So in this case, it was odd that they were saying, oh, you know, they were reluctant to send somebody to take these photographs. 
All in all, the medical examiner did not think that his time dealing with the police in this case was very pleasant or anything that was really normal. He said that the police had a hostile attitude during this particular investigation. And yeah, it's really crazy to think that the police are telling the medical examiner like this information about this case is none of your business. Like what? Like they yeah. work together. Like that is so that, yeah, that would definitely be alarming to the medical examiner. Like, what do you mean? It's none of my business. Like I thought right. we were trying to solve this case together. So yeah, very strange behavior. The autopsy results eventually showed that Christine died from a single gunshot wound. The bullet went through her heart, killing her instantly. The gun was either touching her body or extremely close to her body whenever it was fired. During the autopsy, the ME also found many brown hairs lying loosely on different parts of Christine's body, as well as other non-hair fibers, such as lint. The ME did not find any blonde hairs or red hairs. All the hairs that were found were identical to Christine's own hair. But remember, that doesn't include that pop quiz information that Mandy gave us earlier the, about the strand of synthetic hair that the officers collected at the crime scene. So the officers alleged that they found blonde hairs on the bandana that was tied around Christine's face, but the M.E. said there were no such hairs found during the autopsy. And speaking of that synthetic strand of hair, something very interesting happened on June 10th, 1981, less than two weeks after Christine's murder. A woman named Sharon, who lived in the apartment next to Lori and Alfred, called a plumber to the apartment building due to trouble with plumbing. The plumber found a reddish-brown wig that was caught in a drainage pipe and blocking the flow for both Lori and Alfred's apartment and Sharon's apartment. The way the plumbing was set up, the wig could have only been flushed from one of these two apartments. The fibers were taken from this wig and they were tested and determined to be a match to the synthetic fiber found on Christine's calf. So Sharon gives a written statement to police stating that in the beginning of June, Lori and Alfred's former roommate Judy called her and invited her to go to the gym. Sharon was unable to go to the gym at this time, but later that day, Judy actually shows up at Sharon's apartment with a gym bag and asks if she can use Sharon's bathroom to change her clothes. Meanwhile, her friend Lori is right next door, so that's already weird. So she changes her clothes and stays for a little while longer, and then she leaves. The next morning, though, Sharon's own roommate uses the toilet, and it overflows. This toilet problem continued, and the water would not stop running. So they have a plumber come over and removes the toilet and finds this reddish-brown wig right inside the opening. So police followed the wig lead and eventually speak with a saleswoman who told them that she had sold a similar wig to Lori Bimbenek a year earlier. Hold on. This toilet situation, is this still a thing yeah. that happens? Because doesn't this feel very jailbirds? Like when they it does. It does. the toilet? <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. And I feel like it reminds me of times when I've heard stories or maybe just read them online, like funny stories about things. It's usually kids like flushing things on the toilet or, you know, parents right. calling because their, you know, their system is backed up. And then the plumber comes and they're like, oh, yeah, it's not working because there's 25 RC cars down here or, you know, right, or right. Hot Wheels cars or something like that. Um, but it reminds me of like that. But if trying to flush a wig down the toilet. Oh, my gosh. There are. Uh, there's so many things that could go wrong with that. And this was one of them blocking the water and getting caught because you way like, more obvious plan. <laughs> yeah. You didn't plan accordingly. You tried to flush an entire wig down a toilet. That's not going to work. That's like panic. <laughs> that's the most panic move I've ever heard. There's like a million other things I would hope you would land on before this giant thing that, you know, that's just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But it's crazy to me, too, that this um, that they were able to find a salesperson to say, like, yeah, I sold a similar wig to this woman a year ago. How does she remember? I can't remember people that I saw at the grocery store that said hi to me yesterday. You know, I can't remember their faces. I wouldn't be able to pick them out of a lineup a year later. So I always wonder in, in cases like this when the, you know, investigators are like, oh, we traced this back. We went back to this store. We asked, you know, and they said, yes, I sold a wig to this woman a year ago. Like that was blows my mind yeah how do people remember do people just really have better brains than I do like is that what's going on here I recently <laughs> asked my dad about a family member who was dead asking how they were doing and he said I don't know they're dead and I was like how <laughs> <did> I <laughs> and it was like somebody I I should have known and I knew but like I asked it and I'm like oh my gosh how did I forget that so yeah a wig 
to a lady you yeah. didn't know a year ago? That's crazy. <laughs> Definitely. So at this point, police are certain that Lori has murdered Christine, and they believe that she did it because Christine was in the way of her new marriage to Alfred. Since Lori did have access to Alfred's off-duty gun during the hours the crime was committed, police decided to go ahead and seize that gun for ballistics testing just to make sure that there wasn't something they missed there. The gun was examined on June 18, 1981, and it was a match to the bullet that killed Christine. The only two people with access to this gun were Alfred and Lori. And as we said before, Alfred had a confirmed alibi. So that meant Lori was the only one who could have killed Christine. Mm. Right? Maybe. (laughs) Well, Lori sure wasn't accepting that theory. And a few weeks later, she said, quote, I was on the police department. I sure wouldn't be stupid enough to use my husband's gun. I can't believe they would think that, end quote, which take that however you will for what you will. But nevertheless, Lori was arrested in the murder on June 24th. She was actually at work at Marquette University when she was arrested and she was charged with murdering Christine. After she was arrested, her locker at work was searched and police found a hairbrush. And of course, the brush had Lori's hair on it, which they tested and allegedly matched it to these blonde hairs that they supposedly found on the bandana that was used in Christine's murder. However, keep in mind, this is the bandana that the police said we found blonde hairs on. Hmm. But when the autopsy was conducted, the medical examiner said, I did not find any blonde hairs. So... Again, take that for what you will. But they said that they used the hairbrush found in, in Lori's locker and matched it to the blonde hairs on the bandana that were supposedly there. So Lori was sent to jail to await trial in a murder that she insisted she did not commit. Her parents actually mortgaged their house and they used their life savings to help defend their daughter. Seven months after Christine was killed, Alfred resigned from the police force. It would take months for the trial to begin, but the story of Christine's murder and the unusual circumstances surrounding it became highly sensationalized in the media, and so much so that many people compared this real-life crime story to a daytime soap opera. It was just everybody who watched this case was really gripped with it at the time. So when we come back next week for part two, we're going to dive into a lot more of this story. As we said in the beginning, um, it is far from over. You know, Lori has been arrested. This is where we're going to end this week's episode. But the events that take place after her arrest are just oh my gosh. too weird to be true, but they are true. And so, as we said, you are not going to want to miss next week because... Yeah, there is so much more to get into and everything we have left to get into um, will take up another full episode. So, yeah, we hope you come back next week. And we're going to reveal about, a about secret. It. I don't know what the secret a is secret. yet. I'll come up with a secret <laughs> about my life I've never shared. It's going to be so good. Oh, you don't miss that's it. what we can do for last thing before we go next week. Yeah. We'll entice them to come back with we'll share secrets or something. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes, we love secrets. Okay. Secrets don't make friends. <laughs> I always forget what that say saying is. Is it secrets don't make friends? Secrets don't make friends. Yeah, they make enemies or something like that. Oh, I don't know. I thought there was a rhyme. Hmm. I'm not apparently nobody tells me secrets. I don't have a clue what's going on. Well, I know the comeback to it, like if someone, you know, says to you, like, oh, secrets don't make friends, and the comeback is, yeah, but friends make secrets or some stupid thing oh. like that. You know, it's those kid kid things. Yeah, right? Yeah. Or maybe I was just really snarky as a child because that's what I used to say. I just remember the <laughs> boys get go to Jupiter to get more stupider. That was like my go-to. That's all I remember. Girls go to Mars to get candy bars. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how we got here. <laughs> all right. So, Mandy, are you ready for last thing before we go? I am. Okay. So, Do this, you want to explain what we're doing? Yes. Uh, um, this was uh, suggested to us by Jessica from Instagram. Uh, it's reverse family feud. So – we name the answers, and the other one tries to guess what the question is. So we're going to give – I can't remember the exact rules of Family Feud, so we're doing it reverse anyway, so it doesn't even matter. Uh, we don't even need Steve I know. Harvey I hope I've done this correctly. This. I know. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll give you five clues, and you tell me what the question is. So if I said banana, orange, apple, five things, you would say, like, what is fruit or whatever. I, we, right. It's not Jeopardy. Exactly. We don't right. have to say what is. So I'm guessing what the topic or category yes. is for these things, that, these answers that you're giving yes. me. Yes, and vice versa. Okay. Would you like to start or Perfect. do you want to hear the clues? I would like to hear the clues first. Okay. Here we go. Ready? Okay. Carrie, Sarah, Winona, Leanne, Crystal. 
Um, <laughs> you can do it. I believe in you. I mean, they sound like female country singers. You got me. it. Great yeah. job. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie Underwood, Sarah Evans, Winona Judd, Leanne Womack, and Crystal Gale. Wow. Awesome. I got those. Okay. So mine may be a little more wordy. That's all right. <laughs> I don't have one word um, clues. My clues my clues are a little longer than a word each. So hopefully I've done this right You're and good. we will be able to guess It's this. our game. Okay. We can do Perfect. whatever we want. It is. Yeah. You're totally right. Okay. So here's my first set of clues. Okay. My kid was playing a game. I made a mental note and then forgot. I didn't feel like it. I somehow missed it. I got lost in my 247th run through the office and forgot what day it was. Reasons you miss a meeting. Very close. Reasons I have not responded to your text. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's good. I like that one. Um, yeah, I've got about a million of those. Most of the time, it's like, I don't want to appear too eager. That's normally my text. Like, why does she have her phone that close to her? So I'm always like, I got to wait a couple minutes because I'm always like, people are like, why? Why are you answering this right away? So I know. But then I forget. You didn't even catch. I included, I didn't feel like it as an option because (laughs) sometimes I feel so bad, but sometimes I just don't respond to texts because I just don't feel like it. Yeah. You don't need to tell me that because now I'm going to be like, I always respond to you. You do. do. You're always good. Um, No, I had like seven text messages that were open the other day. And I was like, why do I have or new? And I was like, why do I have them? And I look and it's all like promo, promo, (laughs) promo, promo. And I'm like, come on, Melissa, you don't even have friends. These aren't friends you're ignoring. You're ignoring. (laughs) You're ignoring uh, ice cream. (laughs) I never ignore ice cream. Okay. Here's my next one. Ready? Barbecue. Chile picante con lemon, ranch, jalapeno cheddar, nacho. Types of cheese. Try it again. Ready? Barbecue. Chili picante con lemon. I don't know how to say that. (laughs) Ranch, jalapeno cheddar, nacho. I made these specific for you. Um, things I can dip chips in. Mm, flavors of corn nuts. <laughs> <laughs> flavors of corn nuts. I didn't know they had all those. I have to look for some of those. Yeah, I Googled them. One might be available, not I need here. to order a party pack. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could just think of all of them ruining my life. So I was like shaking whenever I was writing these down. But yeah, I can't remember. What, I think ranch are the ones you tried to kill me with, but it's neither here yeah. nor there. Go ahead. <laughs> Okay, here's my next set of clues. Okay. All right. On top of the fridge, in a secret box on the top shelf in a closet, disguised inside a bag of frozen broccoli, in the car glove box, inside of a fireproof home safe with a complicated entry process. Places I hide my candy for my children. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love it. Those are good ideas. I need to write yeah. those down. Some of them. Right? The broccoli Disguise thing. Disguise inside of a bag. Yeah, yeah. I I heard that years ago and it totally works. I will put, especially if it's like chocolate or something, because I my guilty pleasure is um chocolate chips because I just like to eat a few of them at a time and eat them slowly and savor them. But my little guy loves chocolate. And so if he sees them, he will just go and eat the entire bag of chocolate chips in one sitting. I'll find the bag with like four yeah. chips oh, yeah. left in it. Um, So I've started folding up the bag and putting it inside of a f- bag of open frozen vegetables and nobody finds them. That's Shockingly. so smart. I love it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's great. Okay. So my last one for you, it's actually only three clues. It's uh, people, places, and things. Nouns. <laughs> one more time. People, places, things. I mean, you're right on nouns, but that's not it. Things Melissa hates. You got it. <laughs> That's exactly it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, here's my last one. My last one does have shorter ones. Okay, here we go. The clues are shoes, the ketchup, a charger for anything, the remote, and the homework we just worked on last night. Things your kids lose. Yes, things my kids can't ever find without asking me. (laughs) I don't even know the amount of times that you and I have been like trying to go somewhere, um, you know, like years years ago, and you'd be like, I've got to find my kids' shoes. We cannot find the shoes. 
always the shoes. And so now in my house, I everybody keeps a pair of shoes like my kids in the car. I'm like, don't even don't even wear them inside because you will lose them. I don't know why shoes get lost so much. I don't either. And now my kids, like my oldest especially, he's really starting to get picky, like about choosing his own style and stuff. And so Hashtag hot he topic. wants yeah, right. Exactly. So now he wants vans. Like he wants these like name brand shoes, which is fine because I love a good pair of vans. I think vans are great shoes. I think they would last him a long time if he actually took care of them. But I am like not down to spend that kind of money on shoes that he's going to literally take off and leave out in the lawn and they're going to get rained on oh, and then gosh. he's going to bring them in and they're going to be like covered in mud. And I just, you know, I don't understand how kids do. They, but my, I know how mine lose their shoes. They just leave them outside. Like they take them off. And I don't know why they do that either. And then I see them barefoot in the yard and I'm like, hey, why don't you have shoes on? And then they're like, we don't know where they are. That's because they took them off last time they were outside for some unknown reason. And yeah, so one day my one day someone's going to live in this house and it's going to be like a shoe graveyard. Like they're just going to (laughs) find random old shoes like from, you know, they're going to be like, wow, these shoes look like they're from 2020. Um, and they will be. They'll be my kids' shoes. Right. (laughs) My son is like mountain man. I don't even put shoes on him in the backyard because he just does better without them like since he's little he just walks around without shoes and it kills me I can't even walk out to the mailbox without shoes I don't want to either but I always have shoes on him no absolutely not just running around just run I can see him running on acorns I'm like what is wrong with you it's just oh no I know I don't get it Mm -hmm. I know and same thing at my house you know how my yard is it's very like woody you know it's very wooded there's a lot of sticks rocks all kinds of stuff in my yard um, you know, I just don't understand running around out there barefoot and I like being barefoot, but Mm-mm. not, not outside. Mm-mm. No way. No, thank you. No. Okay. Melissa, that was the episode for this week. And I am very excited for part two next week. Um, like I said, oh my gosh, there's still so much more to get oh into. My gosh, yeah. And this is already getting really long. So we're going to let you guys go for this week and we will see you back next week. Same time, same place, same story, but crazier. Yeah, nice. I like that. Have a great week. (laughs) Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.